0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 24th of November, 2019, on Monocle 24. It's Sunday, the 24th of November, and this is Monocle's House View. Today, NATO is brain dead. The EU is struggling with expansion. Why is Emmanuel Macron being so provocative and offending so many of his European counterparts. In Austria, how the Green Party fought back from near oblivion to a likely role in government.
1: Somehow things had happened that had made the party for citizens not as a mixture of credible as really something they wanted to vote for anymore. So we worried in the polls we were down to 8-9%. Plus
0: a look through the weekend's newspapers and a look back at a fairly extraordinary week. All in the next 30 minutes on Monocle's House View here on Monocle 24. Hello, welcome to Monocle's House for you for this uh, Sunday morning from me, Paul Osborne, here in Studio One at Midori House. We begin today by pausing in admiration for the French language. For while many politicians struggle to explain the various challenges that face the European Union as it both enlarges and prepares to say goodbye to the United Kingdom, few can match the panache of Emmanuel Macron. For France's president, this is like trying to butter an expanding piece of toast. Whatever that means. Mr Macron is a little less flowery in his description of NATO, where he describes it as uh, being brain-dead. What is he up to? Let's discuss that with my guest in the studio today. Elizabeth Brawley, leads the Modern Deterrence Project at the Royal United Services Institute here in London. Um, Let's begin with that line about NATO, because his argument is seem perfectly reasonable that given some of Donald Trump's announcements over the last couple of years that Europe shouldn't rely on the United States to necessarily come to its aid in a crisis. But brain dead is not the sort of language that generally wins people over.
2: No, it's not. And it may even be a uh, an applicable term for NATO, but it's not something that the, the president of a major a member of NATO, member state of NATO should say. It's something that like somebody like me could say, even though... I wouldn't even say it. It's okay, NATO has some challenges, but as the president, as the head of state of a major member state of NATO, it, these are concerns that you voice with your fellow leaders at, uh, in closed door meetings, not in a major media interview. And that's, I think, what has taken people uh, by surprise and even shocked them. And, and uh, not just analysts, but his fellow leaders are, are really, as uh, the Germans was said, they were bewildered and and there were stronger statements from other countries. But what is he up to? And uh, it, it's um, it's part, I think, uh, of um, a strategy that he's pursuing of, of strengthening France. But uh, that is obviously at the expense of somebody else, and in this case, NATO.
0: You say this is the kind of thing that would normally be raised in a in a closed-door meeting with some description. Is the fact that he says this in public, I think this was in an interview in The Economist, that he, that, is, is that that? Is, is it to be taken as a sign of exasperation that he is maybe trying to raise these issues and not getting anywhere?
2: Well, that is certainly true. But uh, how many? Uh, imagine how many exasperated leader, leaders there are in any alliance. It's just the nature of cooperation, starting with uh, teamwork at school, where some do more, some do less, and, and you're a bit frustrated when when the project is handed in and you feel you have done more than than some of the others. Uh, And um, he may well be very exasperated, but other members of of NATO are exasperated. For example, those countries who contribute a lot of troops to NATO operations and and missions. And those countries do not include France. France contributes a minimal number of troops to to NATO uh, operations and missions. And by the way, the largest contributor is the U.S. followed by Italy.
0: Um, now we know that Mr. Macron is a, is a enthusiastic supporter of the idea of a of a European military force, a European army, which of course proved very controversial in in the UK. But the departure of the UK from the EU presumably opens opens a path up for that.
2: Yes, it does. And and, and the the major obstacle to uh, deeper defence integration in the EU has always been the UK, and behind the UK uh, have been a number of. Uh, countries on the pragmatic wing that, that like the EU for the open market but don't want it to turn into um, some sort of federalist structure. Uh, but the UK has essentially been the ringleader and now with the UK leaving uh, that wing is weakened and, and uh, Macron clearly sees an opportunity to, to pursue those goals and we have to remember that okay, you can argue it's, it's good for the, UA, uh, uh, for the EU to integrate more but he is doing it uh, he's promoting the idea not not for some sort of selfish or uh, se- se- unselfish or altruistic reasons. It's because he wants to strengthen uh, the position of France within the EU and, and hopes for a major role for France, especially in defence and security.
0: And this is th- this is the golden opportunity for him, surely, because Germany is entering a period of political uncertainty. We still don't know who the chancellor is going to be uh, after Angela Merkel has gone if the general election in the UK goes the way the polls are suggesting, then the UK will probably have left the EU in about six weeks' time. So if there is an opportunity here for Macron to push France forward into that position of sort of primary leadership, it is
2: now. Exactly. And here is another factor to take into account. Right now, Germany is looking pretty weak um, for the reasons you described. And um, if the... uh, Christian Democrats win the next election or become the largest party and and form a a coalition, they will uh, obviously, uh, the the Chancellor will be from from the Christian Democrats. But what could also happen is that the Greens continue to surge, and the German Greens have two very capable and uh, very energetic leaders, and one of them would then um, most likely become Chancellor, and then Macron would face a much more energetic and determined uh, German leader and and results a much more determined and energetic Germany. And that would, uh, I think, um, uh, uh, put a completely new quality into the the French-German relationship where until now he has been seen as um, the provider of new ideas, the energetic uh, part of that duo, uh, but what happens if, if um, the, the German leader or the, the Green leader, uh, Robert Habeck, uh, becomes his counterpart then? Um, uh, that could be a, a very interesting uh, dynamic. I'm not saying it's it's uh, the most likely scenario, but it is one scenario. Um,
0: at the same time, Mr. Macron has also voiced some concerns about this sort of relentless expansion of the EU into new countries out into Eastern Europe. Um there will be that sense, won't there, in France and I suppose also in Germany that with the UK leaving as a major net contributor to the EU budget, that the burden of absorbing poorer countries with weaker economies will fall on France and Germany to a greater extent.
2: Yes, and uh, the the wealthier northern European countries. Uh, the question about North Macedonia is uh, I mean, it's it's a really tragic case actually. So Macedonia was called Macedonia and because it was called Macedonia, Greece objected to it joining NATO and the EU uh, because Greece has its own region called Macedonia, and so it blocked uh, North Macedonia. And then North Mas- uh, Macedonia, then Macedonia took the unprecedented step and a really quite radical step of saying, "Okay, we'll change the name of our country." I mean, when have you ever heard of a country changing its name to gain admission? to these to to certain international bodies but that's what macedonia did and i think it was a very enlightened step rather than continuing this this uh, conflict uh, verbal conflict with greece and uh, uh, the prime minister staked his uh, political future on the population the population and parliaments approving of this strategy, and um, and they did. And now Macedonia is called North Macedonia. As a result, has gained admittance uh, uh, to NATO, and the point was that it would also be invited to join the EU, and and that was a plan. And other EU countries uh, stuck to their promise, but uh, France vetoed it, and. You can say it's it's not beneficial to the EU to have uh, more countries f- from the Balkans as, as members because it w- will harm uh, the EU's prosperity and cohesion. But the EU had promised membership to North Macedon to Macedonia. If it changed its name, it did, and now uh, those dreams are in tatters.
0: Well, in a few minutes, Elizabeth is going to look through some of the stories in the weekend's papers for us. But uh, she mentioned a moment ago there the potential rise of the Green Party in Germany. We're going to pause and take a look at the situation in Austria, where in September's snap general election, the Green Party won nearly 14% of the vote. Quite an impressive comeback after two years earlier failing to make it into Parliament. Last week... Australia's Conservative leader Sebastian Kurtz announced that his party wanted to form a coalition with the Greens. Now, if that works out, those coalition talks would produce a very different government to his previous alliances with the far right. Reporting now from Vienna, here's Monocle's Alexei Koryov. <laughs>
3: That was a demonstration in 1978 outside the Austrian Parliament. The demonstrators were protesting against a newly built nuclear power plant in Sventendorf near Vienna. This sparked a nationwide debate and then a referendum in which the Austrians voted no to atomic energy. A byproduct of this campaign was the Austrian Green Party, which officially came into existence several years later in 1984 after another
1: wave of protests. Ulrike Lunacek was there from the beginning. Um, I think that was the initiation at, at that time in many parts of Europe, the, the protests against nuclear power plants in the 1970s already. We had a referendum and we won it. So that's why Austria is one of the few countries in Europe that doesn't have any nuclear power plant. The building was built and it's still there, but it's a museum now, <laughs> a place for concerts and, and other things.
3: Ms Lunacek went on to serve as a Greens MP, then MEP and Vice President of the European Parliament, and then in 2017 as party leader. Unfortunately for her, that year the Green Party suffered its worst result in the general
1: election. Somehow things had happened that, it's not now to go into all the details, that had made the party for citizens not as Mixture of credible as really something they wanted to vote for anymore. So we were worried in the polls we were down to eight, nine percent, and then on election day and evening we only had three point eighty-five percent, which meant we didn't pass the threshold. So we were out of the main chamber of the parliament, which was a horrible shock. I stepped down from all my functions. I decided I, I cannot just continue. Somebody has to take responsibility. So we didn't have the main stage anymore.
3: But two years after that shocking showing, the party is not only back in Parliament, it's also on the verge of entering Austria's federal government for the first time in its history. This extraordinary turnaround is largely thanks to growing public concern about climate change. But it's also because the Conservative People's Party needs a coalition partner, and the Greens are its only hope. But can the two parties really work together? They disagree on almost everything from the environment, to tax policy, to immigration. The Conservative leader, Sebastian Kurz himself, said it would take a great deal of creativity to reach a consensus. Ulrike Lunacek is on the Greens' negotiating team.
1: I don't know yet whether we will be able to form a government together. On some things, even our Green positions, like on the environment, is something that you could call in a way conservative because you don't want to take everything out of the soil of the earth you don't want to destroy all the woods and all the the free landscape that we still have yeah? you you can see it from a bit from a conservative side and on the other hand even on on refugees there's lots of people on the christian on the catholic side even priests who have taken refugees into the churches and that's people who generally vote conservative party so there are parts of people's party who would side with us on some issues and we also on some with them so I don't know yet
3: the Greens are part of all but one state assemblies in Austria and in four of these it's also in the state government can this help in the coalition talks Peter Klaus is a green member of the Vienna City Council
4: of course because I think this uh, experience what it means to uh, be part of a government and to find compromises Yes, it, it also shifts the image of a partnership on the federal level.
3: Mm. Mm. And uh, so with these current negotiations, um, you know, is there a sense among the Green Party members that
4: you know, Sebastian Kurz just had no other choice, you know, he just took what was there? Mm, I don't think so. I think Sebastian Kurz had uh, more opportunities. There is still a strategic opportunity with the Freedom Party and the Social Democrats, I think. but. What all parties, regardless of their main focus, see is that the climate crisis is an issue throughout all parties and voters. So what I think is the result of this uh, last election is that climate was the number one issue. It's more like an issue-driven decision, I think, to at least try to form a government with the Green Party.
3: So suppose the negotiations are successful and the coalition is formed, what will Austria look like by the end of its five-year term? A last question for Ulrike Lunacek.
1: Well, um, it will have a lot less import of fossil fuels. We will have less poverty among children and and families with many children, which is the case now. Austria is one of the richest countries in Europe. We will have shaped also the economy in a way where taxes are paid for waste, for using fossil fuels, and we will have a scheme for migration where we know that we give people chances to migrate and to come here, to work here, and maybe at the meta level, that in Austrian society, hate speech and hate mongering, that that will have gone down a lot.
3: For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Alexei, thank you. You're
0: listening to Monocle's House for your Monocle 24. I'm Paul Osborne, with me in the studio, Elizabeth Praw. We're going to take a look now at some of the stories in uh, the weekend's newspapers. Um, The election dominating on the front pages, we'll get to that in a moment. There's an intriguing story in the Sunday Times about uh, Chinese espionage allegations
2: yes and this is uh, if it turns out if what the alleged uh, spy uh, says turns out to be true then it's it's a huge case so it's a chinese man who has defected to australia and who claims uh, that he worked well that he was a chinese spy and in that capacity helped uh, trying to well interfering with elections in uh, uh, well in, in neighboring countries and um, uh this is the first time that a, uh, a chinese buy. if that turns out to uh, that, that is what he actually did um that uh, a chinese spy has uh laid open so many, laid bare so many details about Chinese interference in, uh, by the way, democratic countries. And that's something that we should be really concerned about. So this, chi- this uh, uh, alleged spy uh, talks about countries in the region, but it stands to reason that if, if he did it in those countries, uh, there might be other, there, there will be other spies, uh, Chinese spies who have tried similar things uh, as, as part of their... Uh, official work uh, in uh, in countries such as ours. I and mean, the allegation,
0: isn't it, that they tried to get sort of effectively of someone who would be sort of Beijing's man, in, elected to the Australian Parliament. Yeah,
2: and, and it, it, there are similar cases known already. For example, there are, uh, there are cases um, I think involving a, um, an elected representative, as you say. This is not part of this story, but but uh, already known where uh, that person is thought to have. Uh, worked undercover. Uh, so, a native Chinese uh, person elected to parliament who is then alleged to have uh, kept working for, or worked for Chinese intelligence or the Chinese government while being an elected member of that parliament. So, uh, when we talk about modern or new threats to our society, Here in Europe, we talk a lot about how Russia may be interfering with our democratic processes. And and we have obviously seen Russia's efforts with regards to 2016 election in the US. But China hasn't really been associated with such efforts before publicly. And if this is true, what the Sunday Times reports, which is based on on what uh, uh, this gentleman told uh, Australian media, then it's uh, a huge case.
0: Uh, now, here in the UK, uh, lots of reporting, obviously, on the elections, about two and a half weeks now to polling day. A um, lot more opinion polls out today, all suggesting that the Conservative Party is, is consolidating that, that lead.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. So, an, uh, a poll from Opinion, uh, suggests that uh, the Conservatives have 19 points ahead of Labour, and that's uh, with not many days to go, so it's... Uh, it, Obviously, in the first-past-the-post system, it's uh, it's less indicative than in a uh, than in a proportional representation system. But still, it's uh, quite a big uh, difference between the two parties. And uh, it's interesting in uh, a couple of constituencies, key constituencies, for example, the one where we are sitting right now. Um, Uh, cities of London and Westminster, the Conservatives are at 39% uh, compared to 33% for the Lib Dems. And that's Chukamun, a former Labour MP, who's standing for the Lib Dems. And uh, Labour has 26%. And it stands to reason that uh, um, if uh, the Lib Dems hadn't put such a prominent candidate in, uh, up in, in this constituency, Labour might be would uh, be doing better. Uh, same thing in um, uh, Chelsea and Fulham and in Hendon, where the Conservatives uh, are ahead, even though in Chelsea and Fulham uh, their polling is down uh, compared to 2017, but it looks like they'll win those three seats.
0: It certainly seems, doesn't it, that um, in those constituencies, the rise of the Liberal Democrats is basically splitting the anti-Conservative vote, and although the majority of the voters in those constituencies maybe don't want a Conservative MP, they'll probably get one because they're splitting the vote against them.
2: That's exactly right. And, and uh, the Lib Dems have obviously said they, they, they won't uh, form an election uh, alliance or even an informal arrangement with with Labour. But um, looking at these poll, uh, polling figures, one wonders if they might be well advised to... to uh, Pull forces in certain uh, constituencies.
0: Uh, just, just briefly before we end, one story as well about um, this is sort of a good news story, isn't it? About a mass release from what's been described as a whale jail.
2: Yes, we need a good story on a, on a day like this, and the good story comes from Russia. And... Who'd have thought? <laughs> <laughs> and it involves international cooperation. So last year, a number of well, Russian uh, organizations. Uh, caught uh, no less than 89 whales, uh, no fewer than 89 whales, um, and kept them in captivity. And it's not exactly clear why they were kept in captivity, but where they were kept was called a whale jail, And uh, both uh, okra and beluga whales. And... uh, It was suspected that uh, Russia was planning to, or these organizations were planning to sell them to uh, Chinese um, zoos or or other institutions. Um, And uh, not surprisingly, animal rights organizations were hugely concerned. I mean, whales are not supposed to be kept in, in, in whale jails. And then it was decided they sh- that they should be released. But as you will remember from Free Willy, it's extremely hard to release a whale who has been in captivity, even if you manage to get him back to to, to uh, open waters. Now, the whale jail was off the coast of Vladivostok, which is far, far, far from where they had been caught. But uh, this is an extraordinary operation. They managed to get the whales out of, of the, the whale jail, uh, get them onto trucks in, in lots of water, obviously, transport them for hundreds of kilometres in these trucks, release them into the the open, and apparently they have reintegrated with their with fellow whales. You
0: say a rare, bit of, a rare bit of good news, Elizabeth. Thank you for that. Uh, finally, it's been a rather colourful week in the news, the constant trickle of revelations from the impeachment proceedings into Donald Trump and the election campaign here in Britain. Looking back at what we've learned, his Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller.
5: We learned this week that the United Kingdom's politicians are still taking to the idea of the leaders' election debate, like goats to rollerblading. Prime Minister Boris Johnson and opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn faced off in a debate apparently structured to find yet further depths to the already abysmal discourse. I'm absolutely clear about that.
3: Yes, because it's been so brutal on the lives of so many people.
5: And this still wasn't quite the most baffling television spectacle to which we were treated this week. Prince Andrew, now a mercifully distant eighth in line to the throne, gave a bizarre interview addressing his friendship with unlamented sex offender Jeffrey Epstein.
1: Do you regret the whole friendship with Epstein? <sighs>
5: um, uh, now, uh, still not. And the reason being is that, that the, the people that I met... Um, And the opportunities that I was given to learn um, either by him or because of him were actually very useful. From which we learned that, apparently, being shot at by Argentinians can seize up your sweat glands for, like, decades, that there is no accommodation available in New York City but the mansions of convicts, that taking four days, a couple of agreeable dinner parties and a nice walk in the park to end a not-really-all-that-close-friendship is completely explicable behaviour, and that, at any rate, a man who dines at Pizza Express in Woking at least once in his life must surely be above reproach. We also learned that there is a world in which being stood down from the excruciating tedium of the public duties of a member of the British royal family is regarded as some sort of punishment. Having shot himself in the foot, Andrew hopped into penitent exile. <laughs> We also learned, although did not necessarily retire to our fainting couches as a consequence, that US President Donald Trump's recollection of particular events may not always be the most reliable guide to what actually happened. The US ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, a Trump appointee, got his memory back as regards Trump's attempts to pull a standover move on Ukraine.
0: I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? The answer is yes.
5: This was former White House staffer Amy Pope speaking to us on Thursday's briefing.
0: I think it's helpful to think about why you would have been reluctant to be straightforward in the first instance. This is a Republican who contributed a significant amount of money to President Trump's election in the first place.
5: We learned, though Iran seems to have missed the memo, that launching missiles at Israel will always invite a brusque response. In Syria, dozens of targets associated with the Quds Force, Foreign Legion of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, were struck. We also learned via leaked intelligence cables of the extent to which Tehran's tentacles have reached into Baghdad. This was Azada Moaveni from the International Crisis Group speaking to us on Wednesday's Globalist. What they tell us about
2: Iran's longstanding post-2003 efforts to influence Iraq, to ensure that it doesn't descend into further sectarian violence, that, that essentially Iran pursues in Iraq a security and foreign
3: policy set of objectives. I think it broadly conveys things that we already knew. It just fills it out with greater detail.
5: What we didn't learn much of, however, was the protests reported to have occurred across Iran during the week, apparently sparked by a rise in petrol prices. In the time-honoured manner of regimes which totally have it all under control and aren't up to anything sinister, Iranian authorities switched off the internet. Here's Yasmin Abdul majid on Thursday's briefing.
2: The reason why people are going out on the streets, a small spark is something to unite people around right it's it is it's something where you can say okay this specific thing has happened and we've got all these woes and we've got all these things we're really frustrated about but this is one specific thing we can get people out around and then it often becomes from that small thing about something much bigger We
5: learn that whatever worries may disturb the sleep of Russia, a fear of being perceived as petty and or vindictive and or very arguably somewhat thin-skinned is not high among them. Russia returned the two gunboats and one tug it seized from the Ukrainian Navy a year ago, but first removed many of the fixtures and fittings. Russia might not get its deposit back. Russia's football team refused to wear their new shirts in a European Championship qualifier against Belgium. Umbridge was taken at the fact that the red, blue and white stripes on the shirt sleeves are in reverse order to which they appear on Russia's flag. Team manager Stanislav Cherchisov gamely suggested that the strikes would be the right way around when players and fans lofted their arms in triumph, but they didn't get that many chances being filled in 4-1 by the Belgians. And to go back to where we came in, we learned something of the melancholy heroism of those candidates who, come election time, trudge footpaths, belabor doorbells, and brandish leaflets in a cause they know to be hopeless. We heard from Luke Parker, who has twice run for the UK's Conservative Party in rock-solid London seats, a task next to which the capture of the Erimanthian boar, the slaughter of the nine-headed Lernaean hydra, the cleaning of King Orgeus' stables, or any of the other ordeals of Heracles look like an afternoon's mildly energetic gardening.
3: Really one of the things they really like to see is that you've actually fought a seat before and that you've almost kind of been vetted by going through that process. You've shown you can campaign, you've shown you can get out there and uh, get your message across. So, so for a lot of people who have aspirations to get into Parliament one day, it's a good route to, to do that.
5: And with that hopeful pinning of the rosette of news to the lapel of fact, or whichever way round that metaphor works, if indeed it even does, but it has been a long week for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: And that wraps up Monocle's house view for today. Our supervising producer, Ben and our researcher, Nick Toomey, studio manager, Nora Hull. Thanks for listening. I'm Paul Osborne. Have a good day.